uh, this this is a big treasure hunt for me. Archival research is a huge treasure hunt, and I cannot get enough of it. I feel the same way. <laughs> when I'm tracking down college radio history, it's like a treasure hunt, and you never know where you'll find it. Absolutely. I've always been interested in pirate radio and those people using radio with uh, for unshack sanctioned purposes. So that kind of interested me because I think that's where some of the most creative radios happen because people are breaking the rules or they're doing something that you know is is seen is deemed to be um, unbroadcastable in some way because it's not been sanctioned. Welcome to Radio Survivor, a program about radio that matters. College radio, community radio, low-power FM radio, podcast radio, pirate radio. We cover it all when it serves uh, communities, when it speaks directly to, um, to the people, and when it's made by communities and by the people. My name is Eric Klein. I'm a host producer of this program. My co-host, co-producer, Paul Reese-Mandel, is not here currently in the room with me. But he did host and produce this episode. We'll hear from him shortly. Uh, on today's show, we have a two-part, two segments to make up today's program. We have uh, one, a segment about preserving and archiving what for me is a hidden history for other people, maybe not so hidden, a history of working people's radio, of labor radio in the United States. And following that, we delve into radio art with Brian Fatou, a contributor to Radio Survivor, a scholar, and Brian has an interview with Dr. Mags Hall, who is a sound and radio artist and a senior radio lecturer at Canterbury Christ Church University. So I'm really happy that we have that interview in particular because it's so nice to have a diversity on these Radio Survivor airwaves. It's enough of me and Paul uh, running every conversation, but don't worry if you like us. Uh, First up, we have a segment with Paul Reismandel. So previously, we talked with Jennifer Waits about the Radio Preservation Task Force and its first conference, Saving America's Radio Heritage. Radio Preservation Access and Education that was held at the end of February in Washington, D.C. The and, Library of Congress. And at University of Maryland. And another person who is there, uh, along with Jennifer, is our friend Professor John Anderson of Brooklyn College, who joins us along with Jennifer, to talk a little bit more about this uh, really interesting event. And John, you were there to represent labor radio. Uh, To a certain degree. I mean, uh, one of the things that, or one of the ways how the task force has evolved is it's now starting to kind of self-organize into specific research interest groups. So the first phase of the Radio Preservation Task Force was to just get kind of a meta sense of what sort of archival tape material and ephemera exist about local broadcast history. Now uh, we've recruited a bunch of members. We have a a better sense of what exists out there. And so the task force is beginning to subdivide into groups. And there's a lot of different groups. Jennifer, um, I think, is the caucus chair, co-chair of the college community and educational radio caucus. Um, And I am the chair of the labor radio caucus. So we're developing an interest group where we are going to go and hopefully seek out uh, specific radio archives that deal primarily with labor uh, radio broadcasting throughout U.S. history. And so, am I correct that you found a collection within seconds of having your first member join the labor yeah, caucus? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Actually, it was it was really interesting. I mean, I'd already been brainstorming ideas of ways that we could we could do this. And and kind of as a caucus overview, the first step that the caucuses are going to be engaged in is attempting to find archives specific to their subjects, then looking for ways to participate and assist in the digitization of that content. So this involves things like grant writing, um, finding affiliates and other archives and uh, people and technology that may be able to help with this process. And then after that step, um, it's hoped that we will actually start to create educational materials around these archives. And we're talking about lesson modules and plans for K-12 and college level. Um, so the first thing that we did, Jennifer, yeah, when my other caucus member joined, it's a caucus of two right now, um, is we started brainstorming potential places where we could uh, look for labor radio archives. And three places came to mind immediately. The first one is the Studs Terkel archive at the WFMT radio network. We're talking 5,000 programs, of which the archive has digitized about 1,000. And they're actually running a Kickstarter for like 75,000 to attempt to digitize another 1,000 shows. And it would be a wonderful way if we could leverage the heft of the Radio Preservation Task Force to accelerate or even complete that process. And there was a member of the Studs Terkel Archive at the conference, and we're going to have some follow-up discussions, so that would be neat. The second thing was looking for particular archives of radio stations that were actively run by labor. And one of the first that comes to mind is WCFL in Chicago, which stood for the Chicago Federation of Labor. And my colleague on the task force, Christopher Terry, uh, ran a search and immediately discovered that there are nostalgia sites and whatnot that exist for WCFL, uh, private individuals that have already digitized certain elements of CFL programming and may actually have caches of longer-form programming that we can get into, or at least know people uh, that may have those tapes buried in attics and basements and closets. Um, so there, there were two hits there. Then the third one is uh, looking for instances where labor was actively involved in programming stations during times of struggle. And the thing that came to mind immediately there was uh, stations in the South that sold time or gave time to textile workers unions, especially mm. in like the 1920s and 1930s when there was a real push to organize the garment industry, the textile industries in the United States. And there have been books written about how radio stations were actively involved. It's kind of like how low-power FM stations today are involved in like the migrant farm workers movements. There's, there's a long history of labor using the public airwaves as a way to uh, inform and mobilize their constituencies. And I think it, with some luck, we'll be able to identify some archives there as well. And it's, when you mentioned the 1920s, it's in the 1920s, the early 20s, there was such a diversity of groups that held licenses. It does remind me of Low Power FM. Yeah. And I mean, um, it wasn't until the passage of the Radio Act of 27 that the FCC explicit, explicitly said, no special interests can hold licenses to radio stations. So there were a lot of stations that had to, you know, either go dark or accept, you know, massive diminishment in their power and, and frequency selections in order to make way for the the anointed owners of the radio, which would treat it as a business. Hmm. And I think a lot of folks, when they hear labor radio, I mean, it sounds like two words that don't often go together. 
in in our in our in our modern context, or or it sounds like an anachronism. Otherwise, yeah, in America, twenty sixteen, you'd expect to like turn it on and hear the international and people screaming "Death to the bourgeoisie," <laughs> <laughs> right? But it, it, it's nothing like that at all. It's 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 working people talking about the the struggles that they face and how they can actually work together to improve their their life conditions. Uh, there's nothing inherently radical about that. Although in America 2016's media landscape, sometimes it seems like that's the case. And it's interesting you mentioned how uh, you and uh, Christopher Terry found uh, these basically amateur archives of, of WCFL, the, the Chicago Federation of Labor uh, Station in, in Chicago, uh, because we mentioned uh, something that Jennifer definitely brought up when we uh, first talked about this conference and how um, there was acknowledgement around uh, basically these amateur archivists, people who have been re- who recorded uh, their own air checks and preserved them, saved them, or I guess in some cases put them online. I mean, how extensive is what you found uh, on that station? We don't know yet. You know, I mean. Um some you got to remember that WCFL has had a very long history and uh and during kind of the end years it was run as a commercial radio station the Chicago Federal Federation of Labor sold it and so some of the archives contain non-labor radio material like there's a whole WCFL jingles page that you can find online and you know that might not be the most useful um right now we're we're finding snippets but again it's a case of you know these people oftentimes tend to be pack rats or they know people who are pack rats or there is actually you know, archival material in the Chicago Historical Society which may have been identified through kind of the phase one search as existing when the Radio Preservation Task Force first kicked off. But now someone actually has to go there, uh, dig through the boxes and, and see what is salvageable and uh, – you know, hopefully that's something that we'll be getting involved in as well. I love that stuff. I'm a I'm a historian by training, so uh, this this is a big treasure hunt for me. Archival research is a huge treasure hunt, and I cannot get enough of it. I feel the same way. <laughs> when I'm tracking down college radio history, it's like a treasure hunt, and you never know where you'll find it. Absolutely. And a lot of these materials, once sort of digitized and maybe even uh, transcribed in some part, would help to, to illuminate this history of American labor. It's not, it's not only about radio. It, it, it sort of there's a larger history afoot here. Absolutely. I mean, labor was one of the first you know, organized constituencies of the public sphere to realize early on that broadcasting could be a very useful tool for education, uplift, and organizational purposes. And when uh, the Federal Communications Commission, Federal Radio Commission, effectively marginalized um, these uh, these organizations from owning and operating radio stations on a large scale, they also you know, went pirate. There's a great case in 1930-something of in Houston, Texas, during the Depression, a hmm. uh, pirate radio station called The Voice of Labor – you know, and it was it was running speeches from union leaders, but it was also advocating things like don't riot over food. You know, the authorities are trying to help you. We're all in this together. Um, and they, they weren't able to have a station, so they set one up in, in a hotel. Hmm. Um, and the judge that eventually shut them down, you know, remarked that they were doing good works, but unfortunately it was against the law. So this is also part of this hidden history of people who are really involved in innovation programming innovation, service innovation that do not get their due in the traditional telling of radio history in the U.S. 
Well, that's fascinating. I'd love to read the the history of of unlicensed labor broadcasters. Uh, that would be absolutely amazing to, Stay <laughs> to tuned. see happen. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, John, for sharing a little bit of uh, your contribution to the Radio Preservation Task Force. And, and thank you, Jennifer, for joining us in this conversation. Sure. Yeah, thank you. So thanks again to John and to Jennifer and to Paul. Funny, funny thing. I was there in the room sitting in front of a microphone, big, wide smile on my face, and I had nothing to say. So (laughs) I didn't participate in that conversation, but I certainly, certainly enjoyed it. Um, Up next on Radio Survivor, we're going to delve into radio art. And here, we'll hear a little bit of sound that I just recorded off of radio artist and the guest on the show today, Mags Hall, off her SoundCloud page. And she didn't really describe this piece, so we'll just have to leave it at that. There's no context, but it's a work by Mags Hall. And then uh, after we listen to a little of it, we'll, we'll jump right into that interview. Okay, hello, this is Brian Fauteux um, here at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, and I'm here with Mags Hall, who will, in a second, just introduce herself, and we're going to be speaking about radio art today, coming from Mags's uh, perspective as somebody who has integrated radio art in with her research. Um, so Mags, would you like to introduce yourself, and then we can begin with a few questions. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, I'm Max Hall and I'm from Canterbury Christchurch University where I'm a senior lecturer in radio. Um, I run radio arts and I'm a, also a sound artist. Okay, excellent. And thinking about radio arts and if there are some listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar with the term or the practice, um, would you be so kind to spend a little bit of time explaining what radio art is, maybe a little bit about its history? Um, or how it's changed perhaps recently? I think radio art is actually something very hard to define. Like any artistic practice, it's very, very wide. So I think to just sum it up in a couple of words wouldn't do it justice. For, For different people, radio art means different things. So for some people, radio art may be to do with performance, a way of making radio. Um, For others, it may be um, about uh, using radio as a ready-made, a form of installation. Um, There are just so many types of radio art practice, almost like any type of painting, that there are just different techniques that people want to use. But essentially, I would say radio art is about playing and discussing the relationships people have with radio and bringing them to the fore. So it's about actually sort of analysing in some ways what radio is about and pulling apart, trying to rupture or distort or play with the relationships that we take for granted on this on this media form. Yeah, that's excellent. I like that idea about you know calling into question our relationship to the medium and thinking about that line of thought. 
um, how would you say radio art helps us to understand you know, changes happening to radio or our larger cultural or political environment? Well, I think that, again, is manifests in many different ways. Someone like Gregory Whitehead has been known for his work, which kind of draws on the way in which the, the history of radio and how it, it's been used for military purposes. So I feel that there are many ways in which we can use the form I think right you know at the moment I'm very interested in the future of FM radio and what's going to happen to it um, and so my practice has been exploring those relationships and thinking about um, who will be squatting the airwaves in the future how will they be used so that you know there are many different discussions when we think about radio at the moment it, you know it's a very resilient form but we're also thinking about how radio technology is affecting and giving us a different perspective on what we understand as, as radio so thinking about that idea of fm squatting can you perhaps go into a little bit more detail in terms of what that means or what the importance of that might be, or even going into a little bit more detail about some of your own artworks? Well, I've always been interested in pirate radio and those people using radio with uh, for unsanctioned purposes. So that kind of interested me because I think that's where some of the most creative radios happen because people are breaking the rules or they're doing something that, you know, is it is seen was deemed to be um, unbroadcastable in some way because it's not been sanctioned. So for me, when I say squatting, I suppose I'm just thinking about if people stop using FM, and you know, which is in Norway in 2017, they're planning to turn off um, analog radio um, oh. and, and just have digital radio. Who will be using those FM frequencies? Um, I, I personally wanted to take a very playful perspective on this because I think this, the reality is that the space will be used as as as, as a, a way in which we actually use our digital um, devices. So in a way, all wireless communication is actually using the electromagnetic spectrum. And in some ways, radio is kind of powering everything. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so it's kind of a radio won't be going away that quickly. But I just thought it was playful to kind of think about how we could be um, you know what we could be doing with it and start investigating what you know where are, what are people thinking about what have they done in the past and bringing that to the to the work that I've, I've been doing that's fascinating and I really like that idea about you know considering some of the rules or regulations and it brings in a discussion of the nation to some extent uh, you brought up you know Norway your practice is situated in the UK um, are there certain ways that you would say your work is responding to certain national policies or are you looking to work across borders and, you know, uh, make an intervention in a way that makes sense in a variety of national contexts? Well, I am actually interested as a lecturer in the bigger picture. However, my work has responded to the fact that in the UK we have um, legislation that said when we get to 50% dab listening, 
that's when we'll have switchover for radio because we've already mm. had switchover for television in the UK. So it's something that people have been pushing towards. However, the date gets pushed back and back again. So it'll be very interesting to see if that actually ever happens. Um, so, so DAB is digital audio broadcasting. It's basically a way in which we, instead of using a, an FM transmitter, using a DAB transmitter, which squashes the signal. So you've got very clean signal. It means that you, you don't get uh, the, the idea was that we were sold DAB in the UK is this idea that you'd have much better sound. You wouldn't have any static or additional noises and, and, um, and it would be much easier to pick up and you could have more stations on DAB because the idea is in the in the UK is that the FM frequency is full up and that's why not everyone can have a radio station because there's limited it's a limited resource. Whereas by having DAB stations, it meant that we could have more um, space for more stations and we'd have better sound. However, neither of those things have actually happened. I don't think we've had we have ha have had some more stations, but not there's not enough space on it at the moment because these multiplexes are kind of are set up to um, run DAB, and they still have limited amounts of, of how many stations they can have on them, and it's very very costly. In fact, more costly than FM. Um, because they've had to put up new transmitters, um, and and uh, often you find the signal just completely disappears and you, you've lost it. Obviously, the key way that people still listen to radio in the UK is through analog means. It's still number one as the choice, you know, listening choice. As most cars still have FM radios, but if that changes you know, this will completely change um, how we use the media. Um, now we have small-scale DAB in, in the UK, which is an experiment that Ofcom are doing at the moment, which is allowing small-scale community broadcasters and small-scale um, uh, independent broadcasters to have a go at using DAB radio, just broadcasting in a small across small distances. Um, so this and it's much more affordable because one of the issues with DAB in the UK is it's been very very costly. However, the downside is that DAB's reception isn't that great in the UK, and there are certain places, just things like the M25, which is the road that goes all the way around London, where a lot of the um, DAB stations um, are very hard to pick up, even though they, you know, have, you know, quite a good network now. It's still not brilliant. The coverage is not really there. Whereas FM, you don't get that kind of complete dropout. You can still kind of hang on to a signal. Yeah, I think that, you know, ensuring that radio is still connected to ideas of accessibility, affordability is really important. And, you know, you bring up very important um, issues concerning obsolescence as well. And, you know, the perhaps potential uh, decline of analog radio is a topic that Radio Survivor is quite interested in. Um, and I noticed that your tree art project um, is concerned with the issue of obsolescence. Would you uh, perhaps be willing to expand on what tree art is looking to um, communicate or uh, accomplish? Well, Tree Radio was basically came out of a residency I did at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, where um, the residency was to do an art project that was going. It was called art, called Art for the Environment. So I wanted to do a project where I wasn't using batteries and I was actually using a solar power. 
So obviously I have, have done many installations in the past where I've used radios as ready-made and so I've had to like either put hundreds of batteries in them or do a lot of recharging. And I, you know, I really wanted to get away from that and, you know, use so, you know, solar to set up a solar pa uh, powered uh, station, which was, and I also wanted to be quite playful by making a tree into a radio station. So the tree is broadcasting the sounds of, the sun moving across the tree and the water retention in the tree is also triggering oscillators that give us a tone signal from the tree. So it is a, it's about kind of creating a very small scale radio station out of an object, uh, in this case a tree. Um, so it's something quite playful but it also tags into bigger things because I'm just about to start a new project where I'm going to be looking into alternative ways of powering tree radio. And I'm thinking about at the moment possibly using, um, um, the, um, in, the, I'm well, I can't say too much about it at the moment, but <laughs> the possibility of, of, of using um, we to power radio. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so things like this really excite me and I know at the University of Bedford they've done a project where they were using um, ra uh, radio to power clocks. I like the idea of using radio waves to power radio. I also like the idea of using you know, bodily fluids to power radio. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is something that I'm, gonna, I'm exploring um, over the next six months. Um, uh, for a project that's going to be making more tree radios. Uh, so I'll let you know more about that as it develops. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I think it's a, a really interesting way to make that connection between radio and other resources, um, particularly in the context of obsolescence. You know, we think about obsolescence, but you know, radio waves are a resource just like trees or bodily fluids, as your work seems to be uh, nicely articulating. And, you know, those connections between the university and you know other communities, the artistic community are very important and that you know brings me to my next question which concerns the creators of radio arts. Is this something that is primarily done in the context of the university or are there other practitioners working outside of the university context? I think mostly radio artists are working outside of the university context. Um, I'm one of the very few people that actually teaches radio art uh, in my course, so I think it's something that's you know not you know mostly it's people are looking at mainstream radio and seeing it as a, a commercial thing where or a public service where people are looking for careers in radio, whereas a radio artist isn't actually looking for a career in radio. They're looking to explore the medium, and it's you know one of their tools that they're using. So. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that it, you know, it's just housed in academia at all. I think, you know, when I got into radio art back in sort of 97, um, I wasn't as involved in academia as I am now. And I think all the people that have influenced me haven't really come from the academic world. Um, they were people, although perhaps in a way that's not quite true, I suppose. The more you look into it, I suppose you can say someone like Tetsuo Kagawa, you know, he was teaching in Japan when he developed Mini FM. And you could also say that quite a few people do a bit of lecturing on the side. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, in a way, I suppose academia is a place which attracts people to who want to experiment and have 
artistic ideas and want to be creative to, to bring those together so in a way it kind of there is a kind of international community of people who have an interest in radio art and it expands across lots of places and I suppose academic institutions are kind of hubs as are art spaces and art groups and st as are radio stations because something like Constradio that didn't come out of, of academia per se although I'm sure there are people that work there who have been involved in it so, yeah, yeah there are many different communities, aren't they? And I would say Wave Farm over in America, they, they haven't come out of academia either. They came, came from a sort of activist, artist perspective, didn't they? So, it's a, a real mix. Yeah, <laughs> like Anna, Anna, Anna Frizz, obviously, is, is lecturing now as well. So, um, you know, yeah, there is a mix of people. Yeah, and when I was in Montreal, uh, there was a lot of people experimenting with radio art but often from the community media or the alternative media perspective and it's important to make that establish that dialogue to radio studies as well um, so and I, yeah, yeah I'm just going back to this question yeah I think my earliest form of, of under, my earliest understanding of radio art came out of my involvement with a community station which at that time was before we even had community radio in the UK it was actually a, it was an art station so when residents started, it was a 30-day RSL back in sort of 98. Um, and it, it it was basically an art station trying to do something that we didn't have in the UK because we didn't have, you know, community radio. But that is a space that allows for experimentation, although sadly in the UK, not, not, not on many stations. Most stations are going for sort of mainstream aesthetics to what they do. There are about three or four stations in the UK that are actually art stations that are trying to do some different things but not many. Yeah that's a, another huge issue I think here in Canada we have a lot of community stations that are paired to campuses, campus community stations um, but you do see some that are working or trying to take a more mainstream approach and then you lose that space to perhaps experiment and, and showcase radio art. Um, but there's another interesting connection to the university institution if these stations are actively hosted there. Yeah, um, certainly. So, yeah, I think, you know, when you asked that question, I thought that, you know, I can see there's an activist side to it, there's um, a producer side to it, but there's also, yeah, there is definitely a quite strong strand of academia within those that are interested in, 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 in this, in this uh, art form. Yeah, so thinking about uh, community radio as perhaps being one place to encounter radio art, um, where else would the average radio listener discover or find uh, either your work or the work of other radio artists? Well, I, there are many great stations out there. Someone like Wave Farm in the, in, over in the States where you are is, is a great place to find him at new, new projects and material that they're airing all the time. Then you've got Radio Papanese in Italy. They are doing some great projects. You've got um, Resonance in London, which also doing some radio art programs. They have a program called Radio, which has a mix of radio art stuff on it. Um, and and uh, so there's there's a variety of stations out there, and they are a sort of international, so I can see it as a kind of global thing. It's not just in one place, that there's just one station. And I think the station that really kick-started this all was Kunst Radio over in Austria. Um, and they have a regular show, which um, 
you know, puts out radio art content. Um, so it, there's a real mix of places. And I suppose I've kind of moved away, although I've been commissioning people to do work on radio, myself, I've kind of moved off of radio and on to, into gallery spaces or forests, <laughs> which <laughs> I find quite, play, you know, quite, quite uh, interesting uh, way of thinking about working with radio on a very micro scale, which I'm loving, actually. Yeah, that sounds uh, it's like some a space to really to really showcase some fascinating work. And uh, yeah, finally, our final question: just thinking about radio fans, radio lovers, broadcasters, listeners. Um, why should you know your radio lovers seek out radio art? Why? Well, why? Why anything? I think you know. Ultimately, people want to try new things. It's like a different taste, isn't it? It's a different. It gives you a different perspective on something you probably take for granted as a quite mundane medium. It's not radio. Isn't just about music. It's about um, speech or speech. Yeah, it can be. You know, it can. The way in which we consume radio has has been kind of quite sterile and and some genres haven't changed for many years and I think it, it's just sort of a way of kind of refreshing your palate and hearing things in a different context and allowing different you know allowing yourself to free yourself of the confines of your expectation of what, of what radio is Okay, great. Thank you so much for your interview today, and we look forward to keeping on top of your work as it develops. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Mags and to Brian for that conversation. So happy to have um, more people contributing to Radio Survivor. And if you are a listener and you made it to the conclusion of today's program, perhaps you have something that you can contribute to Radio Survivor. We are open to new ideas and to new voices. And all you have to do is reach out to us. The email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Of course, you can also send us your feedback if you don't want to produce a segment for us. You can just tell us what you think of the segments we do produce, or you can uh, give us the idea that you had and, and make us do the work if we ever can get around to it in half the time. Speaking of getting around to it and having the time, Uh, We produce this program because we love it and because we need to, and we do it as volunteers. But the truth is is that we have, um, we aspire to greater things, uh, including uh, turning the podcast into a radio program that community radio stations can air uh, for free. We would give it to them for nothing just to spread the word about community radio, low power FM radio, college radio, um, pirate radio when it's, when it's good, uh, but to do that work, we, would, we need your support. So to support Radio Survivor and the work that we do and to help spread the word about radio that matters, you can take a look at supporting the work at radiosurvivor.com slash support. Well, my name is Eric Klein for Paul Reismandel, for Jennifer Waits, for uh, Matthew Lassar, who will be back on the show, I bet you, someday talking about his new book. Uh, thank you so much for listening and tune in next week.